Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, hey, hey, hey. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles, California. And I have Candace Jane Opper on the program today. She has a new memoir out from Corey Press. It is excellent, and it is called Certain and Impossible Events. Uh, this book came to my attention. I think it was somebody from Corey Press who reached out to me, but it won the Corey Press Memoir Award which was judged by uh, none other than Cheryl Strayed. Here's what Cheryl Strayed has to say about certain and impossible events. Quote, certain and impossible events is unlike anything I've ever read. It is a powerfully original exploration of the many meanings of suicide and a beautifully written memoir of a particular kind of loss. I was impressed with the intellectual curiosity of this book and also with its emotional rigor. It is an intimate and ultimately poignant portrait of one woman coming to grips with an experience that inexplicably shaped her. Perhaps most of all, I loved the quality of the prose. I was in this talented writer's thrall from page one. So I can't say it much better than that. That's, that's exactly how I felt about certain and impossible events. I had a great conversation with Candace Jane Opper, and that is coming up in just a bit. Uh, next week on the program, I will be in conversation with David Tremblay, author of the memoir, As You Were, which is available from Dezank Books. As You Were is the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It is one of the more harrowing memoirs that you'll ever read. It's a recollection of David Tremblay's childhood, bouncing between uh, his father, a troubled man who wrestled with anger, alcoholism, and traumatic brain injury, his grandmother, who survived Indian boarding schools but mistook the corporal punishment that she endured there for proper child-rearing, and his mother, who was a part-time waitress, an exotic dancer, uh, a locksmith, and a woman who had to hide from uh, David's father in church basements and in the backseat of her car and so on until ultimately she had to abandon her son on his grandmother's doorstep. So there's a lot more to it. And it's it's quite a lot. You're going to hear about it next week on the program. David Tremblay and his new memoir, As You Were, available from Dezank Books. 
A listener named Stefan writes, Hi, Brad. I've been catching up with other people episodes recently, going from the present all the way back to July. It has been quite a journey from the brilliant biographical interview with Michael Schumacher to the hard scrabble work ethic of Darian G, the harsh political realities of Jared Yates Sexton, to the existential thoughtfulness of Matthew Salisus. I listen mostly while playing NBA 2K on PS4 in a listless pandemic haze after my son goes to bed. There are some emerging themes from these recent episodes that I've noticed. Maybe you would care to comment, uh, perhaps most prominently, your tortured struggle with social media, your hatred towards it, your hatred towards and participation, active or passive in the medium, suggests a problem so persistent it could only come from within. The question becomes, are you angry at or critical of social media, or is the true problem your own obsession with it? In your conversation with Rob Doyle, the two of you could not have sounded more bitter than if you were talking about ex-lovers. All best. Thanks for the wonderful show, Stefan. Well, thank you, Stefan. I appreciate the uh, kind words and the note, and I uh, appreciate you listening. I definitely feel obsessed with social media. Anybody who has listened to this show for any length of time is probably aware of this. It's a recurring theme in my life. It's a recurring theme on episodes of this show going back many years. And, I, you know, I think what it comes down to is that the more that I read about social media, or the more that I have read about it, the worse that I feel about it. So when I read, uh, for example, Shoshana Zuboff, she wrote an outstanding book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, or when I read Jenny O'Dell and her book, How to Do Nothing, or uh, the book Zucked by Roger McNamara, who was a guest on this program a while back, I don't see how you can learn about what these social media companies and what these platforms are actually doing and not come away like feeling like jilted and disturbed. And I suppose, you know, I suppose as always, the alternative is to simply ignore these books and these writers and just kind of tune it out and enjoy your Twitter addiction and just go with the flow. But I can't do that. And at a certain point, I couldn't do social media anymore. And it really is worth pointing out that I was a true uh, Twitter addict. It wasn't like a passing fancy. I spent a decade on Twitter, checking the site like dozens of times a day. It's not normal behavior. It felt like, like, you know, after a while it starts to feel like lab rat behavior. And uh, it felt like the site owned me or owned a sizable part of my brain. And I don't like that feeling. And then once I read a bit and I understood what was going on with the technology and how the algorithms work and how the companies were strategizing and how, you know, we're all, like all social media users are essentially being manipulated and co-opted and stolen from by these companies, it became easy for me to get out. Or at least to, to get out at the level of active participant. You know, I should flag that just so I don't sound like a hypocrite. The Other People podcast, for example, it still has a Twitter feed at Other PPL. It has an Instagram feed. 
um, because it's a business, you know, necessity. I do feel an obligation to get the word out about the show, but I don't do any posting. All of that is handled uh, by Joseph Grantham, my uh, social media director. And I do still read Twitter, uh, in particular for news. Like I have a certain cycle of feeds that I will read, sort of like I read the New York Times or I go to the Washington Post. Like I go through and just sort of scroll the feeds just to see what's going on. But I don't tweet. You know, it's it's a little bit tricky because I do think that these sites, I think Twitter, as an example, does have some good utilitarian uses for things like news aggregation or whatever, you know, whatever area of interest you happen to be, um, you know, wanting to read about. But even there, I'm probably reading too much. It's probably not great for my brain. So anyway, aside from that, I think there's just an ingrained part of me that despises the idea of being taken advantage of by some big corporation. Which, uh, like, let's be honest, for the overwhelming majority, like 99% of social media users, uh, you're being taken advantage of. Yes, like, we're, you know, you're quote-unquote connecting with friends, but really, uh, at the end of the day, you work for them. You work for Mark Zuckerberg. You work for Jack Dorsey. You're creating content for them for free, and they are monetizing that content. They're selling advertising based on your preferences and dropping, you know, dropping those advertisements into your feed. And they're selling uh, your data without really asking for your permission or doing so in a kind of ham-handed, you know, subtle, easy-to-miss way. And they're selling this data to all manner of businesses and God knows who else. And this, I think, is where you need to read uh, Shoshana Zuboff. It's, uh, I feel like it's genuinely dystopian, the implications of it. And also, there's a lot of unknown. And yes, you know, if, you're, if you happen to be in the 1% or like the one half of 1% of users, um, you know, who have gone viral and you have like 60 million followers or something, or if you're a famous person, you know, some sort of uh, Hollywood celebrity, then sure, you know, you can make a business out of your feed and turn the tables and you can become an influencer and you can get sponsorships and book deals and all the rest. But that is uh, by far the exception and not the rule. And just to get to that point tends to require a lot of work and upkeep and maintenance and it becomes its own kind of albatross and its own form of addiction with all of that reciprocity and dopamine and conflict and cyber fame and everything else. So, you know, I just think that we don't really know quite yet exactly what this is doing to all of our brains, social media, smartphones, internet existence. I don't want to sound uh, overly reactionary or curmudgeonly. I know that that's how it can sound. It can sound like, you know, okay, boomer, or, uh, you know, I just sound like an old guy. I'm not even a boomer. I'm a generation X, but you know what I mean? And I do understand the distinction, uh, that technology itself is not evil. It's just a tool, right? A smartphone is not some evil demon. It's how you use it. But you know, the past 15 or so years in the aggregate, if you kind of zoom out and look at it, 
it's, it's hard not to see it as some kind of massive, unregulated psychological and emotional and economic and social experiment that has certainly had a big impact on all of us, all of our lives, all of our brains, or most all of us anyway. And I think for me, just me personally, it got to a point where I realized that it wasn't doing me much good. It wasn't worth it. I'd rather be reading a book or trying to write a book or spending time with my family or exercising or I don't know. I I just don't want to be involved in it. I don't want to be a slave to Twitter. I don't want to work for free for a corporation or some like, you know, weird libertarian asshole. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't want that. I don't want to work. (laughs) I don't want to work for a corporation at all, let alone for free. And I think in my conversation uh, with the author, Rob Doyle, who was my guest in, uh, I believe, episode 689, I think he is at a similar point with it. I think we probably have read similar stuff. And so we were commiserating and being bitter together. So I hope that explains it. I know that's a little bit of a long-winded answer, but... You know, this stuff, uh, I have feelings about it. So thank you, Stefan. I appreciate you uh, listening. I appreciate you taking the time to write in. If you are out there listening right now and you would like to send word and write to me or write to the show, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Literati. You've always been your, uh, your child's best teacher. And with Literati Kids, they'll have the best library too. Great children's books open up new worlds for discovery. And with Literati Kids, your kid or your kids can explore uncharted places every month with spellbinding stories hand-picked by experts. This is a cool service. Literati Kids is a try-it-before-you-buy-it subscription book club. Every month, Literati will deliver five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the immersive magic of reading right to your home. So if your kid's or in quarantine, or you just want to get them reading more, try Literati Kids. It's an age-based book club, um, and it can be tailored to all different age ranges, and it ensures appropriate reads for your budding bookworm, whether they're snuggling with you for story time or they're letting their imagination roam free. Each book bundle is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with five stories meant to spark new interests and nurture a healthy curiosity. No more sorting through hundreds of titles trying to figure out which one your child will cherish. Literati sends you the very best in kids' literature. Choose to purchase the ones that they love and send the rest back for free. It's simple. From art and adventure to tales of compassion, each Literati box follows a new enriching theme with personalized extras like stickers, surprises, and special guest artwork. Every box is a fun and fresh adventure. Just go to literati.com slash other PPL and get 25% off your first two orders. Did you hear me? You can get 25% off your first two orders. Just go to literati.com slash other PPL. Select your child's book club and get them started on a literary journey like no other. Literati.com slash other PPL. It's the only place to find 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription. The most joyful way to foster a lifelong love of learning. Once again, that's literati.com slash other PPL. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so having said that, let's get to the conversation. My guest, uh, Candace Jane Opper, and I do want to say too, there if you heard Screaming Children <laughs> during the monologue, it's just, I think my kids were having like a water balloon fight in my backyard. It's pandemic life. I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry if it was uh, annoying, but there, you know, there's only so much I can do. So... Uh, my guest again today is Candace Jane Opper. Her new memoir, her debut memoir, is called Certain and Impossible Events. It is available from Core Press. It is the winner of the Core Press Memoir Award, and it is excellent. I recommend it, and I loved uh, having this conversation with uh, Candace Jane Opper. So here she is. This is Candace Jane Opper, and her book, one more time, is called Certain and Impossible events. So when I was 13, uh, a boy that I knew from school that I had a crush on killed himself uh, shortly after the suicide of Kurt Cobain. And um, for a number of reasons, it impacted me greatly. And um, I kind of made it a, a mission at 13 that I was going to find a way to tell this story. Um, and obviously, I didn't really know what that meant or what I wanted that to mean back then, but I, I just felt this incredible, um, like feeling of unfinished business that like something needed to, to be addressed. And part of that was because my community didn't really do a great job at, um, addressing it after the fact, uh, which I talk about a lot in the book, but anyway, it's just been, it's been a story that's been bouncing around my head for a long time. And, has taken many different shapes over many years. And, you know, for, for listeners who don't know when Kurt Cobain died, this was 1994. So this was 25 plus years ago and I'm 40 years old now and the book has finally come out. So <laughs> it has uh, had many iterations and uh, been quite a journey. Um, but it actually sort of started to take shape as a book when I was a grad student about 10 years ago, I was in an MFA and I, naturally sort of um, went in the direction of this for my thesis project. But at the time, I ended up actually doing a ton of research about suicide and, and the, um, the cultural implications of suicide and the way it's approached scientifically and sociologically as a form of study. And I, I ended up doing a ton of research. Um, I just read like literally everything I could get my hands on about suicide. So the book ultimately started to take this shape where it was like, all of this research that I was collecting and my, my experience as an adult researching it, but also the story, like the personal story of this 
then 30 year old woman who had been kind of obsessing over this boy for a long time and his death and trying to start collecting more information about that, that was, that was, um, absent or not available to me at the time. And so, um, it's those two storylines sort of woven together. And then, you know, that was about 10 years ago that I was a grad student and I continued to work on it and, um, published a few sections of it as essays. Um, but then in 2018, uh, it won a manuscript contest, which was sort of unexpected. <laughs> and, um, that is, uh, the version that ended up becoming the final book. And it was Core I Press that you, it was I Core I Press, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. and this this uh, boy who you refer to as Brett in the in the book was in band with you. Yes, we were in school band together. And you played clarinet. I did, and he played trumpet, and he was very talented. And that is not me, like using my rosy tinted lenses, which I do tend to use, um, but he really was just like an incredibly talented, uh, musician, like far beyond what, I mean, if, if you've ever heard a middle school band, it's, it's not really very pretty, but he was actually like talented way beyond his years as, as a parent would say. And so this kid was 14 when he took his own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he shot himself just like Kurt Cobain. I mean, it was, you know, like you go into this in the book, but the, the suicides do bear, I guess that similarity and, and the timing you can't help. And the, and the fact that there was, what was there a Nirvana album or some kind of Nirvana paraphernalia around him at the time that he died? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I like at the time, the way information sort of came at us and like, you know, a reminder for anyone who wasn't a teenager in the early nineties, you know, this is like a time before social media. And so, um, people are exchanging information just over phone calls. And a lot of this was rumors and hearsay. And um, I I just remember making a ton of phone calls to people and trying to get more information. And I had one close friend who um, was a closer friend to him than I was at the time. And she actually went to his uh, like private memorial and and she had gathered some information from there. And I remember sort of... um, really grasping onto that as like, okay, here are some facts because the facts were so blotted out to us. Um, and, and I think part of that, you know, is generally maybe parents not wanting to expose the the degree of violence in, in an act like shooting yourself, you know? Um, but also, um, you know, I learned later that, that schools generally have a kind of protocol as to like what they should and shouldn't or can and can't do after a suicide. And um, one of those things is not revealing the details because you risk sort of creating a guidebook for other students to possibly potentially follow suit or imitate those actions. So, you you know, there is there is reasoning behind not wanting to give all those details out. But um, kids are curious, you know, and we got our information where we could. And some of those details were gathered then, but they were never, they were never confirmed. Like everything was, was rumors and hearsay. And, um, you know, I later, many, many, many years later actually got the police report of his death, which I write about in the book. And I was sort of shocked to find that a lot of the things that I would have classified as rumors back then were actually based in reality, you know? And one of those things was that, you know, he did have <clears throat> some Nirvana CDs with him and um, an article about Kurt Cobain's death from Entertainment Weekly 
with him. And um, in that article, they actually talk specifically about like what kind of gun Kurt used and and what temple he shot. And, you know, in in itself, that's almost like a guidebook right there, you know, but um, but yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I often get frustrated reading obituaries when they don't list the cause of death. Uh, you talk about curiosity. I guess it's a morbid curiosity, but it's also natural. You know, like so, they're like, "Oh, so and so died," especially if it's an untimely death. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I, the natural question is, what happened? And so often they don't say, and in particular, they don't say when it's a suicide, mm-hmm. and they don't say when it's a drug overdose. You know, mm-hmm. it's like he went to sleep and didn't wake up, or, um, you, you know, I don't know. Just they, they t- there's tends to be like more obfuscation in situations like that versus when somebody dies of cancer. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So what's interesting though is that, you know, in this kind of pre-digital era when this took place, you don't have the kind of rapid dissemination of information that you might now or disinformation. But that all these years later, what you were hearing via telephone turned out to be largely accurate. That came as a surprise. Yeah, it definitely did. Um, I think it's just because, you know, just thinking back to adolescence, it's I think so much of what you hear is not true, you know, and um you know, as to whether like you can confirm all the rumors about people you knew at school, (laughs) like that's to be argued, you know? Um, but yeah, I definitely like, I think I needed to believe that a lot of it was true because I needed to feel like I had some sort of answers back then. And I think that it was at least slightly more satisfying that there, there seemed to be this connection to Kurt Cobain even though I I hadn't really ever confirmed that. Um, I think it was, I think after suicide, there's often this scramble to try and to find like a singular catalyst, even though there's never like a singular catalyst, you know? Um, I think it's always like a combination of, of factors, but I think there is this impulse to want to like point the finger at one thing. And I think that was satisfying in a way to have, um, that, Kurt as a reasoning at the time because it was like okay you know even though I don't I don't agree with this and I don't you know uh, it's not necessarily like like a clean closure or anything like that it still provided some kind of reason Um, and it also like connected his death to this big cultural phenomena which felt kind of satisfying in a way like it, it felt like he was part of something. But again, like in the pre-digital era, I had no idea how big or small that something was. And that was one of the more fascinating parts of my research was to like actually do some research into the into the phenomena of a Kurt Cobain sort of copycat suicide crisis and whether that was something that actually took place. Because I think as a teenager, I thought that I just kind of assumed it was a thing. I kind of assumed like, oh, if Brett did it, there must be like teenagers all over America or all over the world doing the same thing. And I kind of made me feel like he was part of some like movement or something. I mean, copycat suicide is a thing. Like they do have some measurable, mm -hmm. I've seen, I've read, you know, articles about this where after a famous person takes uh, his or her own life, there tends to be an uptick in suicides in the general population. 
Yeah, there does. Um, you know, and it, it's just very hard to like the statistics don't necessarily get any more specific than that. Um, there was an interesting study I read. I think the, like the first one, they, the first like celebrity suicide they tried to measure an effect after was, um, Marilyn Monroe's in, uh, 1962, I think it was. And, um, you know, there seemed to be like there, there was actually an uptick in suicides in Los Angeles. And I think also specifically of women, um, in the months following her death. Um, but because suicide statistics are generally classified just as like a, the mode of death, um, you know, you can't necessarily like, like quantify or qualify suicides by the reasoning, you know? So I think that, that makes it, it's like one level more complicated. Like you don't necessarily, like for example, in Brett's case, you know, unless you are looking into the police report and reading that, you know, he had this Nirvana stuff and you're like making that connection, like that's not public information really in yeah. terms of statistics, you know, so it's hard, it's hard to say. Sure. And it's a unique kind of grief. Uh, you know, I've experienced it. Uh, I was telling you that I lost a, like a good buddy of mine when I was in college to suicide and it's still with me. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you, I mean, I, I think you're, I can, I can say with reasonable certainty that you're the same way, but whenever <laughs> I hear of anybody, um, dying by suicide, I always click through. I always lean in. I'm especially sensitive to these stories. Um, mm -hmm. I'm as sensitive to loss in general, I think, and maybe more so because of this particular loss. But suicide grief is its own beast. It's different mm -hmm. than other kinds of grief. It carries more mystery. I feel a little bit haunted by it because there's so many unresolved questions. There's the feelings of guilt that can uh, be associated uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Like not only your own experience of it, uh, over these many years with Brett's death, but also in terms of what you learned in your research. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. There, there is all these unanswered questions. And I think in a lot of the research about, um, what are technically called suicide loss survivors, you know, there's the, the constant question of why, you know, um, but I, it's really interesting. I, I've, I think it is a kind of death that, that is much easier to, to sort of latch onto even when, even when you get past like the initial stages of, of grief, I think it's easy to sort of latch onto the mystery part of it because it, it sort of feels like there is an answer that can be reached even if there's you can't reach it you know i think it like tricks you into thinking that you can or at least that's definitely my experience of it um and uh it's also it's also so hardcore like i think there's some fear in me like the fact that my buddy did this like to, you have to it takes some courage like a weird kind of you know dark courage but i'm way too chicken shit to, to ever <laughs> get close to doing something like that. Uh, and I think for me personally, I had never suicidally ideated at, at that point in my life. Like it just wasn't on my radar. I was kind of a happy mm -hmm. kid more or less. I mean, I had my down moments, but I was not, 
super depressed or dark. And I think when he killed himself, it was like, oh shit, like this can happen. And, you know, once that door is open and once you've seen the, you know, you've been through that experience, it sort of, uh, changed me. It like shifted, uh, things in, in a, you know, in a kind of dark way. And it scared me and I couldn't help as an imaginative person, you know, kind of a creative person. I couldn't help, but go there, um, you know, thinking about him and his decisions and that dark night for him. But also like in my own life, it was suddenly like, okay, well, I guess like people can do this. And did you get it? What I'm saying? I feel like probably for you at 13, uh, I think that was the age you were at when this happened to you. Like, did you feel a similar kind of shift? Yeah, I definitely did. And actually, you know, Brett's death was like my first death period. That that wasn't like a like death sort of close to me. That wasn't like a an extremely distant family member that I didn't even know. You know, um, and I think the mix of those two things was like rocked my world certainly. But but yeah, I think I didn't. You know, I definitely thought of suicide as this thing that like happened. But you're right. It is like this. It does seem to exist like in this other part of your brain where until you you face it like and match it to a real person that you knew it's easy for it to be like really abstract and i think at for me at 13 it was still really abstract um and part of that was because i felt like i didn't like have all the details about it um you know that it did feel like this thing that still existed like outside my my way of thinking but you know of course you know, I do know other people who've died by suicide later in life. And, um, you know, having read so much about it and, and sort of immersed myself in it, um, I think I definitely like forced myself to be in that headspace. I also, I talk about in the book how it, it is hard to like write about like the hardest part, not maybe not the hardest, but one of the hard parts about writing about this is that I, I have never been in like a, a suicidal crisis or had, at least at the writing of the book, like had that kind of ideation and been in that headspace. And I think that that was a hard part of it because I felt like, Oh God, do I have, do I even have a right to write about this? Like not having gone through that experience. Um, and I want to, I want to interject like, cause mm -hmm. this, this is delicate and tricky to me because I've never been suicidal. Like I've never been seriously suicidal, but I qualify suicidal ideation as like, I don't know, imagining, suicide or being like, well, I guess this is like a feasible option for humans or just entertaining the idea. I don't know how to even, uh, use the words. You know, I, I consider people who are seriously suicidal ones who are like making a plan, you know, and mm -hmm. that's not me, but I think that as an imaginative possibility or as like a, like a possible outcome, that's what happened when, uh, my buddy Judd killed himself. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. Like, and I, I feel like I even thought about it before Brett killed himself in terms of like a thing you could do, like a, in a sort of imp of the perverse kind of way, like, you know, walking, I, I, I can't remember whether I wrote about it in the book or whether this is a part that was taken out, but I did a lot of research about the Golden Gate Bridge when I was researching um, suicide. And I know that I put a little bit about it in the book, but, but yeah, that I definitely have like a feeling when I walk over a bridge, you know, that 
like, wow, what if my brain just like ticks off for a second and I just throw myself off, like not thinking, you know, like, and I feel this, like, I'm scared of my, myself. I'm scared of, of my ability to take my own life, you know, just knowing that it's a possibility. Yes. Yeah. And like, how can, I can't imagine being a thinking person and not grappling with this. I mean, what's the old Camus quote like it's the only like real philosophical question like the, it's, the only real philosophical problem yeah. yeah i mean and and it's like it's a very natural human thing once you realize like mm-hmm. okay this is within my power to end this uh but why wouldn't i mm-hmm. and but it's also like i i felt a lot of times have because i did talk to so many people in the process of researching who had had been through like had suicide attempts and been through suicidal crises that I also felt like it was very much like a point a philosophical sort of point of privilege for me to be able to like sit and and think about this in a philosophical way when there are people who are really like thinking about it in a very real like psychological way you know it's which is a very different experience of it obviously yeah no doubt and I think like I've had conversations and I've gone through phases in my life where I've been like, God, it's so selfish. Or uh, I never really felt super angry the way that it sometimes is depicted, you know, in the media where you get angry at the person who left and mm-hmm. you feel all this, un- you know, you have to go to therapy and resolve your anger. I never felt anger. Um, I felt like deep sadness and grief. And I think I felt and maybe to some degree I'll, will always feel guilt at having not been as present as I could have been for him. I was like a 19 year old stoner, you know, and I was like mm-hmm. in this phase of my life where I was sort of, um, hedonistic. And I think maybe in retrospect that there were warning signs that I didn't see, or I kind of partially saw, but didn't put together. And, you know, I, I I'm not too hard on myself cause I was 19, but it's still mm-hmm. hard, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, not to be like, Oh damn he sure did like to spend a lot of time alone and you know, like you can kind of put puzzle pieces together with the benefit of hindsight. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you like took the experience of, of like this kind of loss and like set out on a like nearly 30 year journey. Uh, one of the things that I admire so much about your book is like your level of commitment. I love books that are about their own making. Um, like that's a sweet spot for me. Like I love art that's about its own creation. And I love the fact that you didn't give up and you found a way to tell this story that encompassed the story of its own creation. Like, I think that's a natural way for things to go. Eventually you just start telling the story of, of the saga of this thing being made. Uh, but another idea that occurred to me as I was reading was that there's like a real, like rock and roll heart to your book. Uh, maybe it's the Kurt Cobain connection, but it's also like this. I, I think when I finished it, I put it down and I was like, man, love never dies. Like, you know, this is like your crush when you were 13. And like, there's something so awesome about the fact that you didn't give up on this kid and this like sweet, like teenage love and that you saw it all the way through to the finish line. And you told this boy's story and your own story in the process. Wow. Thank you for saying that. That's, that's kind of what I feel about it, but I, I still, I still feel like this, 
this degree of shame, which is definitely connected to the feeling of being a 13 year old, you know, which is just like a pit of shame all the time. I've never, Um, I've never left that pit. I think I'm still there. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely uh, still have a toe in that pit. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting because I think when this first happened, I felt like it was this, this huge monumental thing, which it kind it kind of was in a way. Um, I think it is. I mean, I think maybe maybe that's just like the experience of of a suicide is always feeling like it's a monumental thing, even though suicide is actually way more common than I think people realize it is. Um, and part of that is is the fact that there's still a lot of stigma around it and people just don't talk about it as much um, publicly, although that is definitely changing. But, um, you know, I feel like when we hear about a suicide, it's usually a celebrity suicide. And and part of that reason is, like you said, that it's not always talked about in an obituary or in a public way. Um, but I think I definitely felt like it was this huge thing, this huge life-changing thing that happened and that nobody, everyone was kind of pretending it wasn't a big deal and that we should just move on from it. And I was like, fuck no, this is not like, this, I'm not going to move on from this. <laughs> like, I mean, part of that is that I, I, I was a stubborn child and I'm still a stubborn adult, but like, I'm sure that was part of the, my decision. Um, but I think over time and in talking about this over many years of my life, I definitely started to get the sense that like, oh yeah, it's kind of like, it's kind of strange that I'm sort of hung up on this to the degree that I am. And eventually that sort of started making its way into the story, you know, that, that like, I realized that my obsession with it was as interesting, if not more interesting than the actual event. Um, and so that, that sort of made its way into the story and became a huge part of it. But there's as much as I like, like you say, like kind of in a rock and roll way, like want to embrace that and want to shove it in everyone's face. I still definitely feel the shame of like, I barely knew this person. <laughs> he uh, like he may not have really known me at all. Like I like to think that maybe he did, you know, we definitely had like a few conversations with each other, but like sometimes I have these moments where I'm like if he just like popped up and you ask you ask him like, "Did you remember this person?" he'd be like, "No." <laughs> you know. And like that is sort of like morbidly funny, but it's also like kind of sad, but at the same time like this is just the life I've made for myself. So why the fuck not? Like, why don't I just like live it to the fullest and put it out there all the way? You know, that, that definitely was one part of it is just like owning it and being like the best way to tell this story is to kind of own, own that obsession and own that weirdness. And, and also what I, what I came to learn over the process of like researching this and talking about suicide to people for the last 10 years of my life. And that wasn't just as part of like a, the research process, which I did, but it was also like, you know, just being out in the world with normal people, they would ask like, well, what do you do? What do you write about? And it would naturally come up is that I think I'm pretty confident saying every single person I have talked to about this in the last 10 years has had some experience with suicide, whether that's like close to them or distant from them, you know, that it's been across the whole spectrum, but that I think that it's a valuable experience to talk about, even if it was someone who was pretty distant from you. I, I found that many people remembered a lot of the same sort of like random details that they they picked at or that they gathered over the years about someone like a neighbor down the street from them who killed themselves 
you know, 20 years ago, they, they would bring that up with me and talk about it and talk about these things that they remembered that seemed like they were just right in the front of their brain. And it made me feel like I was sort of becoming like a spokesperson for people who, (laughs) who had an experience that like, they weren't in the inner circle of grief, but these are still stories worth telling. And, um, you know, I just kind of felt like, well, someone needs to get out there and say like, hey, I had this experience with this. I didn't know this person very well, but it still affected me like really deeply. And I'm going to tell that story and maybe it'll encourage you to tell your story or or at least like start a conversation with your partner or your child or someone, you know? Yeah, I, I, I think it's great. And I think one of the things that your book uh, achieves is it brings to light how deeply we affect one another in ways that we might not realize. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, this boy you barely knew. And here we are talking about him 30 years later, you spent your whole life writing a book about him. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I I think it can be easy for us to feel like, oh, you know, we don't matter or nobody knows or cares about what I'm doing. And it's just not the truth. And, um, I think too that there is a lot of shame and pain around dark feelings and deep sadness and this topic, you know, whether it's, you you know, you're a suicide survivor and talking about it is difficult or there's associated shame or guilt, or you're a person um, who has struggled with these feelings in a serious way, or you're more like me who's got like the more like casual philosophical relationship with it, that too can carry uh, shame. It's like hard to talk about. And it's not necessarily the kind of thing you bust out at a cocktail party usually. But I think I have a very strong feeling that most of us, uh, like you said, either have some relationship to it in the sense that we know somebody who has taken their own life, either at close range or from a distance, or we have gone through difficult periods. Like think of this past year with the pandemic I think so many people are struggling with mental health and so many people are having existential um, conversations with themselves and others amidst all this difficulty and amidst the difficulties of the past four years. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it's a very good thing to talk about and um, gives me another reason to be happy you wrote this book uh, and did all the work that you've done. Thank you. I, I hope so. You know, I mean, I mean, I feel like, you know, one thing I came across often in, in reading and researching was that, you know, there is this like, the suicidologists really like to talk about the fact that there's like this, this myth that if you talk about suicide, you're introducing the idea of it to someone. And, you know, at this point, having read it so much and having seen it so much, it, it kind of feels like something out of, you know, an after school special or something like that. But like, I do... I do think that 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 fear might be kind of lodged in our brains somewhere that like there is something kind of volatile about talking about it, um, whether we're consciously thinking that or not. Um, And maybe it maybe it's also a fear of of appearing morbid or something like that, which I think some people have expressed to me like that they don't like to talk about it because they feel like it's too morbid. Um, but I think also there's a, a fear that you're, especially if you're talking to someone who's having 
who's in the middle of a crisis that if you bring up suicide or if you ask them if they're thinking about suicide, that you're actually like giving them the idea. And um, I really don't think that's the case. I think I think it is it, it weirdly can feel feel very volatile. But I think the more often you say it and talk about it, the more it, it doesn't normalize it as an activity, but it normalizes it as a way of being open about it, you know, which I think is huge. I can't help but believe that being more open about things is beneficial. Uh, like that's just my impulse in general. And I'm curious in, in the research that you did, uh, like suicide crisis hotlines, if they're talking to somebody who's struggling, did you learn about any techniques or what's the protocol for how you're supposed to speak to somebody who's dealing with a crisis? Is, is there like a methodology? Yeah. The, I mean, there definitely is. Um, and it's, you know, I'm not necessarily the the right person to ask because it's not like 100% fresh in my mind. And I think these techniques change often, um, depending on what works best for people. But I think it is best practice to ask if someone has, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Um, and do you have a plan in place? And And I think those questions are able to determine like where where someone is in their crisis, you know, at what level, like, is this at like, we need to have a talk about this or we need to call 911, you know? Um, and I don't, you know, I've, act, I've never worked for a crisis line, so I don't, uh, you know, don't quote me on any of this. Like I know people who are, are better resources for this than I am, but yeah, I mean, I think, and I've even had that experience, you know, I have a, I have a four-year-old son and I had some postpartum depression, um, after I had my son and, you know, I definitely was in some some dark places after, and it was my my first experience having suicidal thoughts as an adult. Um, and it, it is for me was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I, you know, I grew up in a therapy family. I've been in and out of therapy for years. Um, I have family members with mental illness, so there was like very open discussion about like mental health and therapy and and everything in my house like there's no stigma to it for me but I think having a conversation with my primary care doctor and her saying have you had thoughts about hurting yourself and saying yes was like one of the scariest moments of my life because it felt like once I say it it's real you know like once I say it like I've actually like acknowledge this in the world to another human and yet at the same time it was like immediately relieving to have said it you know and to have someone else know and to have to know that someone else is like about to get my back you know yeah yeah my wife and, went through my wife went through uh, I think a lot of this is another thing that doesn't get talked about nearly enough is how many women mm -hmm. experience postpartum depression or postpartum OCD or some combination it's yeah. it's it's a lot more common than I think statistics often indicate because there's so much shame around it or a lot goes unreported or people don't have access to healthcare, you know, the way that they should. Yes. So many, so many reasons, you know, or that you're you're supposed to um just love your little alien looking baby unconditionally and be at the most joyous part of your life. You know, even though you haven't slept in weeks and like your whole life has completely been turned upside down, you know. <laughs> it's a big biological event. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, as I hear you talking about it, I mean, if you're in a if you're dealing with postpartum, like that's a very specific uh set of circumstances. But in terms of like suicidal ideation, like I'm reflecting on my own 
brain and how I think about this stuff. Like to me, it's like, it's like an act of imagination. Uh, you know, it comes up every once in a while. It's like, like you said, when you're walking across a bridge, it's just like, oh God, like you're so close. Like the membrane between life and death is very thin, you know, like, yeah, I think that's yeah. like a natural, that, that's, that feels natural to me as a human thought process. I'm wondering if like, like where's the line between that and like the kind of conversation you're having with a doctor where they're like, have you been thinking about suicide? I would be like, well, you know, if I'm walking across a bridge <laughs> you know, or like, um, I, I don't like handling guns, I think for that reason, yeah. like I'm not a gun yeah. person. Cause I'm always like, Oh, it's too close. Like that, this is a killing machine. It's right there in your hand. Like, I don't want anything to do with it. Um, because I'm thinking like, I could just point this at myself and it'd be over. And is that a problem? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, where do I, where do we draw the line between, uh, like kind of natural human curiosity and, you know, it, thinking and something that would be diagnosable or treat, you know, in, would put you in a, the realm of needing treatment? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question. I, I think it's, I, I think it's, um, you know, like the degree of control you feel like you have, um, and just based on my experience, you know, having postpartum depression, like, I think that it was, it was a very different feeling than it is for me to walk over a bridge and be like, whoa, what if I just, what if I just like lose my brain for a second and jump off? Like that feels very different than the feeling of like the kind of slow downward spiral of depression, which is just the metaphor I'm using for myself. But like, feeling like getting to a point where like you, like you feel like, wow, I just, I just don't know if I can wake up and do another day of this. You know, it's a very different feeling for me than, than just like having philosophical thoughts in terms specifically of like emotion and the way emotion affects you physically. I, I don't think of the experience of like being scared of guns or thinking about jumping off a bridge as an emotional feeling that to me is like a philosophical and, and like cerebral mental feeling. Right. So yeah. Uh, and maybe that's the difference. Yeah. And I, you know, I struggle too when I think back on my buddy um, and you talk a bit about this in your book, it's like this, all these unresolved questions and I can't help but have this feeling that he had a really bad night. Uh, and it's not that he didn't have mental illness uh, possibly, you know, I think there was some history of uh, bipolar disorder in his family or depressive uh, depression in his family that you kind of learn about after the fact. Um, but I just think like, wow, if he just could have made it through to the morning, he'd probably still be here. Uh, oh God, yeah. I mean, is that, I don't know. I, I guess like I, you, you never, like how long was he planning this? Like how seriously was this like a possibility for him and for how long? And, uh, or was it kind of an act of impulse? Is there some, like you say, some neurochemical like flurry of activity that just sort of appeared rapidly and pushed him over the edge. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that, I mean, I, I think with, with the suicides of adolescents or young people, um, I think it complicates it a lot more in terms of like the impulse factor because of the fact that your brain is not fully developed and impulse control is like one of the last things to develop. I think even more so in males. So you know, that's something I've thought about so often with Brett, um, you know, because he was so young and, you know, there's just, it, it would just seemed like the perfect storm where, right, like he idolizes this rock star, right, who kills himself in a way that is 
horrifically violent, but also romanticized publicly, you know, um, and still is, you know, <laughs> we're going on what, 26, Six. 27 years now, like Kurt Cobain is still on the cover of every fucking rock magazine every April on the anniversary of his death. You know, and I know people are celebrating his music, but like, um, you know, and I'm a huge Nirvana fan. I'm not going to lie, but I do think his death is sort of romanticized in a way. And like it very much was at the time, even if the media like did make an effort to like, to talk, talk more openly about suicide and, and say that it was a bad thing and say like, don't do it kids you know um i think because of the fact that it it was portrayed the way it was um you know like that sends a message message for sure to kids and you know so he's got this idol who has just died by suicide he's living in the house with a gun you know he knows where it is um and then whatever other factors were were present which I will never know. But like, you know, perhaps he did have this the seed of a, a mental illness happening that that changed his impulse so that he did something like that and the boy who lives across the street did not. You know, like I think that there's there's no way to to ever like diagnose after the fact, you know, if you haven't had a chance to look into those things beforehand. Um and I think sometimes mental illness is not even showing itself. Um in people so young, you know, so it could, you know, it just could be a number of things, but yeah, it's hard not to feel in that case. And perhaps in your case too, that it wasn't just like, it almost feels like an accident, you know, <laughs> it almost, it, it almost feels so impulsive that it's just like, like a shade past an accident, you know, yes. like, like barely, barely a suicide, which it, it also terrifies yeah. me as a parent. I am. Um, oh my God. Completely. Like, like how to communicate about this to my kids, how to like shepherd them through adolescence in particular. Um, I have a son with disabilities. I'm like dreading adolescence for him. Like it's going to be hard, uh, mm -hmm. you know, harder than I think it would be otherwise. And I'm just like, what do I do? And I, I think back to a conversation I had years ago on this program with a, an author named Jennifer Michael Hecht. I don't know if you're familiar with her book stay, but it's like stay. And then the subtitle is like a history of suicide and the arguments against it. And I, I had a great conversation with her and I was particularly interested in the arguments against it portion of that book, like how to make a philosophical case for why it's important to remain on the planet and to mm -hmm. understand clearly how important we all are to one another. And in ways that we might not fully realize as we were talking about earlier, like the meaning that we have in each other's lives is often really subtle, but it's powerful. Uh, and I don't know, I guess like I'm, I'm always like wanting like a clean, clear, easy to remember explanation for like, why not to do this? Like, don't do this. And you know, here's how to get help or do you see what I'm getting at? Like, did you come to some yeah. conclusions or ways of thinking about this and talking about this through the course of your research that really resonated? Oh, geez. I, you know, I don't fucking know. Like I, I talked to, so, I talked to so many people f coming from so many different perspectives. And I think that like, 
now because I've been doing this for so long and have this book out in the world, like I, I do feel like a responsibility to be a resource to people and people, you know, I just, I hear from random people all the time and I'm totally happy to talk to people about it, but I still don't necessarily feel like I have the answers. And I also like, I think part, I mean, I guess part of the answer is just like being able to talk about openly about it with someone. So like that, that is a, a good answer <laughs> in a way, um, is to be able to like have a conversation about it. But you know, I still, I still struggle with certain ph philosophical things, specifically like, um, physician assisted suicide, which is not, I think in terms of discussing suicide as like a, a crisis that comes from mental health issue or, um, a social issue, like physician assisted suicide kind of exists as its own thing. And I didn't research it a ton as part of my book, but I find it fascinating because I think that we are starting to, I mean, definitely in other countries are way more willing to, to accept it as like a thing that people do. And, and I know there are some States here where physician assisted suicide is legal, but this idea that you could get to a, a chronic point of a bad illness. And, um, if a, if a physician says, it's okay for you to make this decision that you can do it. And it's, you know, depending on who you are and where you are starting to become more acceptable to do that. But I think where it gets murky for me is that, you know, the much of the conversation about suicide is connected to mental health and understandably so because a certain percentage, like the, I, I would say probably the majority, although it's it's not necessarily a large majority, but the majority of people who die by suicide do have been diagnosed with a mental illness. And so I think making those connections is important because in order to try and like lower these numbers and stop suicides, it's about getting people help. So I think it's, it, I do agree that like having those, those conversations connected is important in terms of like destigmatizing mental health issues providing more access to people for mental health care and therapy. Um, but I think also there are so many like social issues attached to suicide as well that we're like not acknowledging. So like, I don't want to say that, that mental health is, is the major cause of it. But if we are having this conversation where we want to consider mental health on par with physical health and saying that people like mental health should receive the same degree of severity and treatment as physical health, then wouldn't we also be saying that someone could have a chronic mental health issue, right? Like you could be chronically depressed, try all these things. And then at what point do we say, okay, you have chronic de depression or chronic schizophrenia or chronic bipolar disorder, you can kill yourself. Right. Like, it, like that's where it gets really murky, like philosophically for me is like, if we're saying it's okay to have a chronic physical illness and you've suffered enough, you're allowed to end your life just to be in peace. Like, wouldn't we have to say the same thing about someone who has suffered chronically from a mental illness? Right. Yeah. And I... then how is that different from someone making the decision on their own? You know, it's, it's, it's so, it's hard to wrap your brain around. It is. And I've gone through, I've had conversations about this subject and about my buddy and just in general. And, I remember talking to a friend of mine once and uh, she struggled with mental illness issues uh, and, uh, you know, addiction and so on and has been through the ringer in a lot of ways. And I was talking about it and I don't know, I can't remember exactly how I phrased it, but she basically looked at me and she's like, I never judge people who make that decision. 
and it kind of gave me, it stopped me in my tracks. I was like, Oh, like, yeah, right. Like I kind of felt like I was being a little bit too know it all or kind of an asshole or something about it. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and then on the other hand, I can sometimes look at it through like this more Buddhist lens where, you know, there's no self, (laughs) we're all interconnected. We contain all of our ancestors, our parents, our siblings, you know, like we think we're this finite entity, but we're really all of these people and Mm -hmm. everything. And when we make that choice, we make it on their behalf too. Like the pain that it causes is so lasting. I think you and I are testament to this. Mm -hmm. Um, like I lost my grandparents. I've lost lots of people, you know, by I'm 45, I'm a bit older than you, but I, uh, you know, you get to a certain age, you're going to lose people and Mm -hmm. it's the self-destruction. It's the, it's the people who self-destruct who I think about the most. And it's that pain. I think that resonates the most, you know, maybe this is just me, but I I think it's common. Like for some reason, this kind of loss cuts deeper somehow or stays with you more. I think it's really easy to get wrapped up in wanting to be inside that person's final moments and what they were thinking and what they were going through. And whether that means like, I wish I understood like the, what had pushed them so hard to do this or otherwise, like I think even in my case, like where I, I honestly don't think based on like what I know about Brett and having eventually, you know, talked to his family about, about him. Like, I really don't think he was having any kind of like, mental health crisis or, or depressive crisis. I do think it was more of a case of impulse. Um, that's terrifying. But, that's so like, I, like he wasn't like going through like a, you know, nobody knew, like nobody was like, yeah, he was really depressed. It was like, absolutely. Actually he seemed fine. You know, like, like that's crazy. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, that's a common thing that people say after suicide is like, wow, I, I had no idea. Like he's the last person I would have expected, but right. I don't think that actually is always the case. I think that maybe in a lot of cases people have been struggling a lot and it, it's just not public or like they don't, you know, people don't know. Um, but I do think in, in Brett's case that I, I don't think he was actually struggling um, or, or have, you know, was it was in a deep depression or, or that suicide was the end of a long struggle for him. I do feel like it was, it was impulsive, but like, I don't know. I think it's really easy to kind of trap yourself in that that final moment or be stuck in there and trying to figure out like what what pushed this person or what was the last thing they were thinking or how alone were they, you know? Or what if the what if the phone rang or something and like would that have changed their course, you know? <laughs> like I think it's it's really easy to get wrapped up in that. Yes. I couldn't agree more. And I think you know, I think about the writing of your book and wanting to tell this story. And I think about struggling with where to end the book, <laughs> uh, because you are dealing with so many unanswerables and things that you could sort of like cogitate about forever. And can you just talk about that? Like knowing when y- you found the end of the book or you got to a place where you felt comfortable stopping like I assume there's not going to be a sequel but maybe maybe I'm wrong <laughs> <laughs> uh no I think I I have like beaten the horse <laughs> I don't think there's like any more answers though I I do sometimes like fantasize about someone really coming out of the woodwork and like having an answer for me that I didn't find you know um and of course like 
not everyone is telling me everything, nor should they. <laughs> like there's, there's certainly things that I, I don't know. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it was, it's interesting because this book actually was published long after I finished writing it, even though I continue to revise it. But I wrote most, I wrote and researched most of the book between the years of like 2010 and 2015. And, um, the the last thing I really did before I finished writing, like the last piece that, that I had was the police report that I requested of his death. And, um, you know, that came after, like I had done all of this research in the field of suicidology and interviewed all these people. And then um, I decided I wanted to go back and start to try and reach out to people I went to middle school with and see what they remembered. So like that was one phase of the research. And then I, I reached out to Brett's family who was kind enough to invite me into their home uh, and talk to me about it. And then I, I felt like at that point I kind of felt like I had everything and I don't, it's weird. Like my husband, you know, he's a writer as well. And, and so he's been very involved in the process of like writing this book with me because he's con like, we constantly have a dialogue about writing in our home and we know what each other are working on all the time. And so at one point, like I kind of brought up the police report and I think it was because I had read another memoir, um, that someone had written about, about a death and that they had like requested the police report. And I was like, God, I guess that's a thing I could just do. And it hadn't occurred to me sooner. And I think part of that was because um, I think maybe when I was a kid, I probably didn't know that that was public information that I could just like walk into my local police department and get a police report. Yeah. And then I think, yeah. I was, I was, I remember reading that yeah. section and being like, Oh shit, you can do this. Like I, I yeah. didn't even think of that. And then I think maybe later I thought that it was probably just too old that they like wouldn't have it anymore. But I, I, you know, reached out to this police department and they, they said they normally destroy them after 10 years, but that be, they only keep the ones that are like violent crimes and violent deaths. So they did still have that one. And I was like, oh, lucky me. Um, but so I requested this copy of the police report. And it was like, I remember it was something like 50 cents a page <laughs> to copy. And I just thought that was like so funny that I just like sent this guy $11 and he sent me a copy of this report, like, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later or whatever. And, um, that to me felt like a, the closest I have come to some kind of like ending personally, emotionally, because I think just, and there were no photos with the report, thankfully, because I'm like, that is not something I, I think I would have wanted to see. But, um, you know, the report is so plain. It, like the language is so plain and straightforward. And that's just the way police reports are written because it's just evidence, right? And so that there's this document kind of distilling this this human person I knew into all of these like details about his body and his like what what items were on his person and what clothes he was wearing and knowing that I remembered those items of clothing and that I probably saw him wearing them like in life I think it was the first time I actually thought of him as dead and that's kind of a weird thing to say because of course I know that he's been dead this whole time but because maybe it's because I didn't partake in the traditional like grief support processes like going to this person's funeral or, or going to memorial and he didn't have a 
you know, his ashes were spread somewhere. So he didn't have a grave site or anything like that and not being included in, in some kind of like grief process. And the fact that my, my school really like downplayed it so much like when we went back to school after his death they just basically I don't even think they said the word death I think they said like we've suffered a loss you know like it was so it was so kind of like pared down and and like just whitewashed in a way like it just wasn't like it wasn't like presented as a death. I think it was very easy to keep thinking of it as this abstract thing. And then I read the police report and it's like talking about how his skin is blue, you know? And like, that's just like, it just was like mind blowing. And I remember like getting this in the mail and pouring myself a drink and reading it over and over and like not even touching my drink. I was like, I I just felt like I needed a drink to like handle it, but I couldn't even drink my drink. And like, just reading this over and over and feeling like, oh, this, this is a dead person, you know? And I think it was just the first time I had really experienced it. And so that felt like kind of as close as I could come to an end in, in terms of like, I, there was no more information really that I would be able to access that would top that I feel like. And so may I ask a question? This is, I hope this isn't an insensitive question, but did you cry when you read the police report or was it just kind Um, of like a a dry eyed, like reckoning? I think it was more of a reckoning. I I feel like I, I still do cry about this at really random times. Like it's like stuff that's more emotional to me, like hearing a song that reminds me of something, you know, like that's, that's more of an emotional moment to me than like, it, it was kind of just like, it was just kind of like more of a punch in the face, you know? Um, but, but yeah, it, I, so then at that point, you know, I had kind of a finished manuscript and then I wrote this chapter about the police report and wrote that in, but I didn't want that to be the end of the book because I felt like the, the end of the, like the scene I end the book on, which is actually a scene that happened a few years earlier than receiving the police report, which was like, going and meeting Brett's family and um, like being in their home, which, you know, at the time was still the home that he grew up in and the home that I had like driven by as a kid and knew that he lived there, though I had never been in there before. And this was the home where he died. Like it was a, it was an incredibly like special moment for like his family to invite the stranger into their home who's like, hey, I, I'm writing a book about your dead son. You don't even know who I am. And this was 20 years ago, you know, like I yeah. wanted that still to be the end of the book. Oh, uh, it makes sense. And I loved how you handled it too. You just like came clean. You're like, well, I didn't really know how to end this. Um, <laughs> this feels like the, you know, you sort of, you know, you sort of just make it transparent and it totally makes sense. And I want to talk to you a bit about action um, and courage specifically like the courage to to actually follow your obsessions to the end you know to sort of like embrace the weirdness i think or whatever however you put it earlier Mm -hmm. and to actually go out and do things uh not just write the words on the page but you know you went to like suicidology conferences you reached out to brett's sister hannah and sat down with her you wound up in Brett's living room with his mother talking about this. Like you did things that require physical action and taking yourself outside of your comfort zone and require courage. And I think the book clearly 
uh, benefits from this. It would be a much different book in the absence of this kind of activity. But can you just talk a little bit about the decision-making processes that you went through around this sort of stuff? Like, did it come easily to you? Did you have to really force yourself to to do certain things? And like, how do you feel about these things in retrospect? Um, I think the fact that this process has taken almost 30 years should probably answer the question as to whether it came easily. (laughs) 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 But um, it definitely was, I I feel like I can think back on every sort of courageous thing that I did and that I really felt like I kind of had to earn that right to do it. And I use the word right because I think there is kind of like a hierarchy um, in grief where like if you're not part of a family or a close friend that especially in, in this case and often in the case with suicide, maybe like I, I think I just felt like I wasn't allowed to have the information or I wasn't, I, I wasn't permitted to like be part of the grief, you know? Um, and, and maybe that was just like an emotional reaction to like not being invited to this private funeral or something like that, which of course I wasn't invited. His family didn't even know who I was, you know, like they have every right not to invite me. But I think that I just kind of felt like because I wasn't in this person's inner circle that I didn't really deserve to be part of the grieving process or to have access to that information. So I think like I felt Like I had to like earn my way to do that. So, you know, the first time I reached out to Brett's sister, I was 18. So five years had passed at that point. I think I had kind of like gotten to a point where I was just like, well, I'm still like, I've just graduated high school. I'm still like thinking about this boy from middle school and like, what do I have to lose? You know, it's just, it's, it's a mix of like feeling like I've earned it and also like throwing caution in the wind and feeling like what the fuck do I have to lose? You know? And thankfully like at the time, you know, she was, she was open to talking to me and, and that was like a point of catharsis, but then it, it just didn't feel like enough. And so like every step I've taken was like, I've kind of gone back to the, I've taken the information I've gained and which made me feel better to a certain degree and then kind of went back to the drawing board and and did something else. And then I ultimately, you know, I feel like the, even the reason why, I mean, mean, I've been writing about this since day one in some capacity or telling the story in different ways. But I think the reason I ended up in an MFA was because I was like, well, you know, this is clearly like what I want to do with my life is like figure out how to tell this story. So why not, you know, try to put it in a box or something like the way, you know, like why not to try to be like, you know, more official about it and put a fire under my ass. So like I got into an MFA program and I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to write about. I don't really know how. And, you know, I think that being a grad student was definitely like, really helpful to the process because it made the whole thing not only like I took it seriously on a different level but it made me feel official it was like a credential sort of like being able to go into these um you know go into these spaces and just say like hey I'm a grad student I'm writing my thesis about this it's like people just automatically sort of accept you and and like I didn't feel like as a human being that I could do that or that I had a right to do that and I think part of that is like the shame that that's always been attached to this for me as being someone that's was outside of Brett's circle and like just this lingering shame of like you weren't close to this person so you shouldn't be having these strong feelings 
which has been, you know, is always there with me, even if I don't actually feel like that on a conscious level anymore. Like, I think that that's always been there for me. So, so being able to like go into these spaces and say, I'm a grad student, I'm doing this and, um, made me feel very official. And, and I think no one questioned me, you know, it was like, okay, come on in. Like, what do you want to talk about? You know? And that was even like what I did when I was reaching out to people from my middle school, you know, which is like, was kind of horrifying in a way because it was like, it did call back a lot of like feelings from middle school to talk to people who maybe I might've never even talked to back then, you know, and, uh, and just say, Hey, like I'm, I'm a grad student. I'm writing about this, but you talk about it with me. And, um, I, I did the same thing with, with Brett's family as well. And like, I think having that kind of MFA house to put it all in, like made it, gave me a certain amount of bravery. But I think after that, it was the fact that I had the fact that I had done all that. And I fact that I had all, all this research and I was, I felt confident talking about suicide in the world with people because I knew so much about it. Um, I think that's also a problem that maybe like I'm generalizing, but I think a lot of women have the problem where they don't, they don't feel confident like talking about their subject that's of interest to them unless they know everything they can possibly know about it. <laughs> like that's definitely my experience. So, um, you know, it was a mix of a lot of things and now I'm just sort of like, fuck it. Like I, it, and it, I think it, it, it came through when I was like, trying to write the elevator pitch for this book, which is like still something I hate that process. And it's still something that I feel like I'm terrible at, but I eventually just started saying like, I wrote a book about my obsession with a boy I went to middle school, killed himself, you know, <laughs> like it was just yeah. like, that's it. Well, and I want to say to people listening, and I, I guess I would just make this observation, um, to everyone, to you, to everyone listening is that I think the, the very fact that you were a peripheral figure in Brett's life that you did not know him well, that you were not in the circle of grief, as you put it, is is a big part of what makes this book and this story so moving. Uh, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about human beings often being blind to how deeply we impact one another and how much we mean to one another. Like, you could mean so much to a person. And like, you're a 14-year-old boy. There is a girl who's, like, in love with you. You have no idea who she is, <laughs> you know, who, like, spends all this time thinking about you, and vice versa. I mean, I had crushes like that. Like, girls who have no clue that, like, I memorized, like, like, your observations of this period of your life are so crystal clear. Like, your memory is extraordinary. I guess you were a pretty de dedicated diarist uh, <laughs> as a teen, because I don't have a, a great memory, so I was, like, marveling constantly at, like, your level of detail. But one of the things that made me laugh is this um, memory of, like, memorizing uh, a person's, like, walking route through the hallways in between classes and, like, situating yourself so you could, like, pass by them or they would have to pass by you. I totally did that shit. Like, and nobody knew about it except for me. You know? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Every... And it all felt very official at the time. It was like there was a system, you yeah. know? Yeah. And you'd just be like, I just remember being like, hey. And they would be like, hey. And I would be like, oh, I got a hay, you know, like that was so big to get the hay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or like sitting a certain way or like making sure your face looks a certain way or like your hair looks a certain way. Yeah, it's like all so strategic. Oh, man, that's such a painful time. And like, oh, yet, it's awful. Such, such a sweet time, too, though. All those like all those feelings, you know, they're so big. And uh, I don't know, maybe like as you get older. I mean, it's a matter of survival. You can't feel at that level of intensity forever, but um, 
there's something great about it too. You know, uh, I don't know. There's something I, like it evoked a lot of nostalgia, I guess, because we're sort of generationally the same. Like it brought me back to the '90s for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really easy. I mean, I feel like it's really easy to kind of romanticize that time, and and then some other times I'll think about middle school and like it's it's just horrible. Like sometimes I get in this space where I'm like, oh my god, this was like I remember every day being so stressful, like feeling like if I made one wrong move, it could like completely ruin my social life, you know, like, because I witnessed it happen to people all the time where like you say something, you say the wrong answer in class and people are like laughing and and making fun of you for weeks. You know, it's just like, I remember it being so, so precarious all the time. Um, and so stressful. And now I can't even imagine having to go through that with social media, like with like the constant, like, documentation of every move that you make existing out in the world. Oh my God. I also fear for my child and his adolescence. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's kind of easy to romanticize. I feel like when I romanticize though, I'm also romanticizing the era and the time and like listening to mixtapes on Walkmans and like, you know, grunge music and, you know, I don't know, wearing my Doc Martens or whatever, you know, like I think it's easy to romanticize an era for sure. Yeah, I mean, we all do that, especially with the music of our youth. I mean, the music mm-hmm. is like the, that's like the portal, you know, it's, it's quick, oh, to, God, yeah. quick to the vein. You just put on certain songs and you're right back where you were. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I want, before I get too uh, much further in the conversation, I want to ask you about this issue of trauma uh, as it, it pertains to grief. Because I've had this question about myself um, I think back to my buddy taking his own life and I naturally ask myself, like, was I traumatized? Like I never went to therapy. Um, the one thing I, I kind of like hang on to, uh, perhaps oddly is the fact that I cried extremely hard at his funeral. Uh, like still to this day though, the, like I'm not a huge crier. Like I, I have nothing against crying, but I'm not like a big crying person. Mm-hmm. Um, but that day at his funeral, I like, I just lost it. And I'm proud of myself, <laughs> maybe strangely for that. Like, I'm like, okay. So like that meant I was feeling it. Like I wasn't like burying it, but I do wonder, like, I guess I should have gone to therapy. Uh, we had just gotten back from a semester abroad. We had like, which is an intense experience to go through with somebody. And like, you know, mm-hmm. two weeks later he takes his life. Wow. So there was like this wild juxtaposition of events that was really destabilizing. Um, and I, I sometimes reflect back and I'm like, wow, I, I endured that all on my own pretty much, like reading books and, you know, being sort of nerdy about the process. But it probably would have helped to have talked to somebody who could, you know, had some experience. But the question I want to ask you is like, do you feel that, like, is it trauma? Like, is that part of what carried you through all these 25, 30 years? Like the, the, the shock of his loss and the nature of his death? Um, like, do you feel that even though you were not necessarily in the inner circle that you were traumatized by it? Or is that too dramatic of a description? Do you see what I'm saying? You know, that's a really interesting question because I never, I never really thought that I was. Um, and I think part of that is because I like was felt like I was actively processing it all the time, you know, like that I was actively thinking about it. And it wasn't like this thing that happened. I mean, I can think of other events in my childhood related to like my upbringing, my family that, that I would 
call traumatizing before this because I felt like, you know, I, I was processing it and thinking about it and writing about it all the time. But I remember, um, one of the suicidology conferences I went to, I went to like a session where this, um, sociologist was talking specifically about work he did with a group that he called adult children of suicide, which was that like adults who had experienced suicide at a really young age and, um, displayed all of these like similar characteristics <laughs> and like being in this room and hearing this guy talk about it and him listing these characteristics where I was like, yep, that sounds very much like me. Yeah. Um, like, well, what are some of the characteristics? Uh, I think like, I don't know. I mean, I'd honestly have to go back and look, I, I wrote about it. Um, actually, let me see. Okay. Um, so he said that some of the some of the characteristics were difficulty with interpersonal relationships, a foreshortened perspective of the future, and a propensity toward regressing to the initial age of the loss in the face of trauma, grief, or really any psychological distress. <laughs> Which made me feel like, oh, okay, that sounds like I could identify with all of those things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I, I definitely feel like I regress to that age a lot. Um, and, uh, I, I, but I didn't, so, so yeah, I mean, like maybe, maybe I was, and I just don't like, maybe this is a type of trauma and I just didn't really like identify it as such because I was so actively involved in it. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, that's something that came up so often in the writing of this book was, you know, people constantly asking me like, but why, but why are you so hung up on this? Like really why? And so that, that became like a through line of the book because I just don't have an answer. And I was really not interested in this book being a sort of psychoanalysis of me and like what, what in my past made me susceptible to this in a different way. Like why would I become so so affected by this and traumatized and so obsessed about it. And, you know, friends of mine who also went through the same thing at the same time were not, you know? Um, well, it's, and I, think, I mean, something that occurs to me and I don't mean to interrupt, but I mean, you're a writer. Uh, <laughs> so people with a writerly temperament or disposition or whatever are inclined to want to grapple and go deeply into this stuff. Like my first novel is a suicide grief novel. I spent a whole decade on it. Like I totally relate. Like, I think maybe that's it. You know, if you're wired to do this work, it's kind of the natural course of things. Like, how else are you going to respond to something? And I would add that there are worse ways to respond. Uh, like, I don't want to get trite about it because I know there's mm -hmm. a lot of talk around healing and catharsis and it can make people roll their eyes. But there is some healing to be found, I think, in writing, in taking the time to really write something long form and where you're really deeply considering what happened and trying to come close to the truth, you know, and can you speak to that? I mean, do you feel like at the end of this process, having published this book, do you feel any sense of healing or quasi resolution around it? Like, did you get to some place that feels solid um, and like formed uh, in this way? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. Like, I think that 
definitely feeling like I completed this project and put it out in the world is like sort of a, a resolute feeling and feeling like I, I went through all these steps to try to actually get real answers that, that I, I didn't have before was helpful and clarifying for me. Um, but I also think that like, I, there will be a part of me that's like never completely beyond this. And, and that, and I do write about this in the book a little because, you know, when I was working with, um, my editor at Corey, she was really pushing me to be like, you need to, you need to dig deeper into like, why, what is it about you? Or like, what is it about your background or your family that would make this, you latch onto this? And I, I was really like, not interested in writing about my family because I do have kind of like a crazy fucked up family life. And like, to me, that's a different story. And I was a little bit afraid that they were going to steal the show if I like put too much about them in the book. Cause in my mind, like this is very, this experience is very separate from that. But that is sort of part of it is that like, this was a kind of loss that was like a hurt so good loss in the way that the traumas I had within my family were not. And so I think that it, it did feel like this was a kind of like loss and absence that like felt sort of good to latch onto and was like a nice alternative to the, to maybe the trauma I was coming out of coming into adolescence from childhood. So I think that like there is, I think that once, once I got past the initial kind of like really bad grief of it, like it, it wasn't, it was kind of like a, I don't know. It was like a comfort to have to have this loss in a way, if that makes sense. No, it's as good as it's as good of an explanation as any. Uh, I mean, I think you could probably spend the rest of your life like puzzling over that and coming up with different formulas for why. Um, I'm wondering, too, and I think you speak a little bit about this. You know, we talk get into the realm of like ghosts and the metaphysical and uh, spiritual and woo woo or whatever you want to call it. But do you have, I guess you must carry some sense of Brett as uh, like a, a very, like a, like a lasting, meaningful figure in your life and the relationship that you have with him now, you know, in terms of the number of years, far, far exceeds the time you knew him uh, among the realm of the living. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like you have this kind mm -hmm. of ghostly relationship with this boy. Uh, like how do you conceive of that? Like, do you have a way of defining him and these kinds of things to yourself? I don't know. I just kind of made it what it is. Like, I, it, it felt like I couldn't exist any other way. Like, it, it felt, you know, the, the shock and like pain of losing and and unfairness. Like, and I'm gonna just say that on behalf of my 13 year old self. Like, it was so unfair like I remember that feeling being like like of all the boys in all of the land like why this boy <laughs> you know to whom I had attached all of these feelings and that's such an adolescent thing to say <laughs> of course but like I still feel that you know like those feelings are real and I'm not going to pretend that they weren't there you know even though as an adult I know that like yeah, these things happen. You know, he, you know, many, many 14 year old boys died by suicide that year and many die every year, you know, and it's always unfair to everyone. Um, but like, yeah, I think that, I think I just like, wasn't ready to exist in this world without this person. And so I sort of like 
almost became like a vector of them in the world, which is like a really maybe weird and fucked up thing to say. But I think that I just was like, I'm just going to, and I write about this in the book that like, I, you know, I would just often like picture him just nearby, like just picture him existing in the world with me. And I never like had a supernatural experience where I saw him or like talk to him or like, or anything like that. It was just like, I literally just pictured him next to me. Like it was not, it was not like a hallucination. I was just like inserting him in the world where I wanted him to be. And it was like just a coping mechanism, like a way for me to deal with it. Um, but I think too, like, I mean, if we're going to get, I don't want to get too, uh, like deep into the weeds on this, but I, I feel like we all are connected and he, there is he's somewhere you know we're non-local yeah. beings you know so there is like yeah there's some connectivity and i've had conversations i i'm pretty sure on this show with authors you talk about serving as a vector for somebody who's no longer with us i've either had conversations on this show with people who have that experience or i can recall like reading you know you'll read about an author who's like you know i was just at a flea market and i was looking through some old photos in this box and this woman struck me and I bought the photo and took it home and it was the beginning of my novel. Do you know what I'm saying? Like we work on each other in weird ways and I'm prepared to believe in some kind of cosmic fate or connectivity. Like, you know, this book doesn't exist. You don't exist in this form unless Brett makes that faithful decision on that day in 1994. Um, you know, we all obviously we wish that wouldn't have happened, but do you see what I'm saying? Like in the larger scheme of things, you know, you can start to kind of zoom out and go, wow, you know, who knows? Who knows? You know, exactly why. But for whatever reason, you were meant to tell this story and his story. Yeah, I definitely feel like that. And it is a hard thing to admit because I think admitting that is like, is like saying, like, you died for a reason, you know, which is, I don't know. Right. It, it feels like a fucked up thing to say. You know, I did have this conversation with another author who wrote a book about suicide who I, I met when I was doing my research. And he asked me if I felt like Brett's death was unnecessary. And I was like, I don't I don't know if I can answer that question because like I wouldn't be sitting here right now doing this, having this conversation with you if I felt like it was unnecessary. Right. Like, I, I don't I don't know. Like, I think you get to a point where you, you feel like it. I can say not that it was like I don't know like can I say it's necessary because it like brought me to this point like and I wouldn't exist as this version of myself without it um you know it doesn't mean like I'm glad it happened but you know um I don't know it's just a hard question to answer which I don't even know that I have an answer for yet but well, it's as deeply tied to your your destiny as a human being I mean you can't I mean, and I could say the same thing about myself. I guess we're all this way with um, yeah. our deep losses, you know, they, yeah. they become like a central part of uh, our narrative. Oh, absolutely. And I think my, my relationship with Brett now is far more interesting than it was when we actually knew each other. So <laughs> I can say that. Has his family read the book? Uh, I don't think so. I reached out to them just to let them know when it was finally coming out. And I did like you know, hearing the affirmative that they like got the message, but, um, I don't know if they're going to want to read it. And I, I told them that as well. I was just like, I don't, I don't know if this is a book you're going to want to read. Um, if it will like rehash 
emotions and feelings that you don't want to have. And, you know, that was something that really struck me when I, when I met with them, which was almost 10 years ago now, was that they just seemed so over it. Like they just seemed so beyond it that I must have seemed like totally ridiculous to them in their space. Like they were so warm (laughs) and kind to me, but, but like they clearly had, had moved on. And I, I know that that is like a necessary thing to do. And I can't, you know, the, the bulk of the Um, research and writing I did was before I became a mother and now that I am a mother and I think back to like the meeting I had with Brett's mother and like her sharing with me what she went through after his death is just like it's so moving to me first of all that she like agreed to do that Um, but I'm also like I just can't it's like a thing you know as a parent it's just like impossible to imagine the death of your child it's like your brain just can't go there you know and to know that this person went through this and somehow came out the other side and was like willing to sit and have like a casual conversation with me about it is just like mind blowing to me. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you, you see people go through loss in their lives as you grow older and responses to loss and difficulty in life vary from person to person. It's like worth mm-hmm. remembering. Um, I've known people who, for example, like have experienced like really difficult loss in a family and it drove the family apart. Mm-hmm. I know people who have experienced similar difficult loss inside a family and it brought everybody together. Mm-hmm. Um, not perfectly, but you know what I'm saying? Like it just, it varies. And there are models and possibilities out there of people who deal with grief in a relatively healthy way, or they are able to continue on productively in life with like a reasonably positive attitude. It doesn't mean Mm -hmm. if something really horrible happens, I guess it's worth remembering that it doesn't mean you're necessarily doomed to live in like darkness, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else. Like, is there anything that we didn't talk about that we should have? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I feel like we covered, um, I mean, but your book covers a lot of ground. Uh, I feel like we got to most of it and then whatever we didn't get to, people can read about, you know, in the book itself. Yeah. Yeah. I hope I didn't give too much away. No, no, no. There's, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's like, a, it's a really gripping story, you know, it's, um, it's a page turner, you know, and I think people listening should realize that. I mean, it's heavy, but it's also like really moving and like life affirming strangely. Um, I don't know if you felt that in the writing of it, but you know, I definitely didn't like put the book down feeling like gloom and doom. I felt like there's something like there's a lot of love in the book. You know, there's a lot of love of you for this boy that comes through and it's a genuine true love. And that's awesome, you know, to find that in a book. And then just the fact that it took 25 years to write, I think as a, like a long suffering literary person, you know, like I'm, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always moved by tales like that where I'm like, Oh, she saw it through. She got to the finish line. Like I'm just clapping for you. So. <laughs> Thank you. I think I like over the course of writing it, like really learned to love that version of myself as well. You know, and I, I, I hope that comes through like just the, like learning to have empathy for my 13 year old self was a really hard thing to do because I think that like, first of all, 
no one is at their best self at 13. If you are, I'm sorry, because your life is just going to be downhill from there. But like, I think this might be the case for me though. (laughs) Really? I feel like I peaked in eighth grade. I joke about this, but I'm like, that was like the best year. I had a great time in eighth grade. Everything's been sort of a slippery slope ever since then. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) But uh, I did not peak in eighth grade. It was like a very horrible time for me. Not, I mean this loss, like notwithstanding, but like, uh, you know, I, I think that it was really, I think that like, of course, like it was also this version of me who like did not tell this boy how they felt and did not like see the signs maybe she should have seen and did not like, you know, you know, like, of course it's like, like you said, you're going back and saying like, I should have noticed things. I should have seen things or I should have said something or been a better friend or whatever. Um, and I think of course, like that's the version of myself that I'm stuck with. And also knowing like, this is the version of myself that this person would remember, even if, if they remembered me at all, they remember this version of me, which is like such a horrible version to remember. But like, I, and so I think I really grew to have more empathy for, for my 13 year old self over the course of writing this. And, um, I think that's a really special kind of love as well, you know? Well, maybe you can, for your next book, you can spend the next 25 years grappling with the trauma of having done this interview for 90 minutes with me. (laughs) Uh, I'll make myself available for interviews if you need, you know, to talk it through, uh, to try to piece together what what happened. (laughs) All right. I guess I'll call you in 25 years. Yeah. Call me in 25 years when you're finally, like, finally can see it clearly. But, uh, you know, it does, uh, raises the question, like, are you working on another project? Are you just kind of celebrating the completion of this one and like waiting for the next thing to sort of materialize or. Yeah, I well, No, I'm not actively working on anything. And part of the reason is that like I'm in a pandemic with a four year old, which does not <laughs> like allow for much writing time. Um, but you know, I have, I have some things in mind and I just haven't committed to any of them yet. And like, I think like the process of putting a book out in the world and all of like the self promotion and marketing that I've had to do the last few months has been like, exhausting enough so i'm just sort of like taking taking a little break well selfishly i hope it doesn't take 25 years for the next one to appear because oh my uh, god i hope so too (laughs) this was a great read i loved i loved it and uh i'm i'm uh congratulating you on a job well done like you know not only for writing a uh, an excellent book but for having the stamina you know to to kind of gut it out for more than almost three decades Thank you. It was a calling, I would say. Right? Who knows what's next? Yeah. Okay. Well, I wish you luck, and I thank you for uh, talking with me. Thanks so much, Brad. It's been great. All right. There you have it. That is Candace Jane Opper. Her debut memoir is called Certain and Impossible Events. It is available now from Corey Press. You must read this book. Certain and Impossible Events by Candace Jane Opper. You can follow Candace on Twitter at Candace Opper. She's also on, uh, I believe, Instagram and Facebook, and you can check out her website, CandaceJaneOpper.com. I think she does a newsletter. You know, track her down. One more time, the book is called Certain and Impossible Events, available from Corey Press. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program, nearly 700 episodes and counting, all available for free. It's a listener-supported show. Your support makes a difference. 
if you want to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, uh, you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. Just throw a buck into the hat every month. It helps. Or uh, if you have, uh, if you're loaded, throw more. Just do, just uh, go to patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. I just updated everything over there. There is now, uh, I should mention, a loyalty program. If you want, if like if you're a super fan of the show and you really want to support it, there's this uh, option where you can support the show at a higher level and you'll get like gear you'll get like a tote bag and a t-shirt and a sticker and a coffee mug like all other people gear so check it out there's tons of options and uh, if you're broke and struggling then just listen I get it you can also uh, get t-shirts if you want to get other people t-shirts sweatshirts tank tops or even a onesie for your uh, child you can do that uh, by going to the show's official website otherppl.com click on the little uh, t-shirt on the left sidebar it's easy it's good it's good stuff too the t-shirts are soft and uh, snugly if you want to write to me the address is letters at otherppl.com this show also has an, uh, an app it too is free get the other people app it's a great way to listen david tremblay coming at you next week it's a it's a doozy Prepare yourselves.